Let us turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 from verse 1. And I'll read it in the New American Standard Bible. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll us away the stone? Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he said to you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. And after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation." He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it shall not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Now this evening we're going to look at the text of these 16 verses and see how far we shall get um, with them. Um, we have already um, 
noted the problems um, connected with verses 9 to 20 in this chapter. Some of you may have wondered, those of you who have a revised standard version, why all those verses from verse 9 to the end of the chapter are relegated to um, the margin or, as it were, a footnote. You will also have noticed in the same version that an, another alternative rendering is given. Some of you who may have read or read the New English Bible will see that after verse 8, there is an additional verse uh, put in. And then it goes on from verse 9 to 20. Those of you who have the New American Standard Bible will notice um, that you have at the end an addition. Uh, in quite clear wording and an extra verse is put there in a footnote or a marginal note to say that it is um, the ending in one early manuscript. Now you may have wondered exactly what all this is about. In the revised version, the standard version, um, the New American Standard Bible, the Living Bible, um, and so on, the New English Bible, all of them have a note which says that these verses from 9 to 20 are not found in the oldest manuscripts. Now, for those of you who have been with us um, over the last few years and can remember these studies, in our very early studies, we did in fact um, look at this problem when we were uh, introducing the whole um, gospel. These verses, 9 to 20, constitute one of the major textual, textual problems of the New Testament. The two oldest and best Greek manuscripts, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, do not include these uh, verses from 9 to 20. Many other valuable but later manuscripts and authorities include verses 9 to 20. One manuscript has another conclusion which reads like this, and they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions, and after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Splendid verse. Um, but uh, in one manuscript at least we have that. Um, uh, other, a number include this edition and continue with verses 9 to 20. Thus the, the New English Bible. Some place this edition after verse 20. So the um, New American Standard Bible. Still others insert further additional material after verse 14. Conybear discovered in an Armenian manuscript which came to light in 1891 a note ascribing these verses, 9 to 20, to a certain Aristion. Uh, Aristion was a disciple of John the Apostle of whom Papias wrote and that means that he the, if this is true it means that this 
these additional verses, 9 to 20, were added to the Gospel according to Mark by the end of the first century. Over the whole matter there has been long and heated debate. And we have to say that whilst Mark's authorship of these verses has been influentially challenged. And when I say influentially, I don't mean just by modernists, but by thoroughgoing conservative Bible scholars. Whilst Mark's authorship of these verses has been influentially challenged, it has not been finally disproved. Indeed, it would seem that from the second century onwards, these verses from 9 to 20 were universally recognized and accepted as the correct conclusion to Mark's gospel. Now, there have been some amazing suggestions about these verses. It has been suggested, for instance, that Mark um, uh, wrote a conclusion which probably included some Galilean appearance of our Lord because he ends by saying, go, and I shall go before you into Galilee. But that somehow over the years, because Matthew and Luke were more detailed Gospels, Mark fell into disuse, and the only copy that was finally found, now this is not my idea, it's a suggestion, uh, was missing the final page and uh, ended at verse 8. Uh, thus, different people have tried to um, uh, sort of add uh, a conclusion, some concluding verse or verses. Another suggestion is that um, it was written just at the Neronian persecutions uh, when the apostle Peter and Paul both were executed, and therefore, um, it was suddenly uh, and rather abruptly uh, stopped, and uh, the end was never uh, uh, written. There are a number of um, suggestions. Certainly, there are some real problems connected with these verses. First of all, I will just enumerate three. First of all, there is the introduction of Mary Magdalene in verse 9 as if for the first time in the gospel, when in fact she has already been introduced in verse 1 and in verse 47 of the previous chapter. It really does seem a little strange when you read through and suddenly find the way Mary Magdalene is introduced. That makes one wonder. Secondly, there is a very abrupt transition from verse 8 to verse 9. Thirdly, these verses do not contain the same vivid and graphic style or wealth of detail as found in the rest of the gospel, but is a very brief survey of some of the Lord's resurrection appearances. In fact, we can almost say a catalogue. Um, the reference to Mary Magdalene is really almost a skeletal form, and the same with the reference to the two who were on their way to uh, Emmaus. 
On the other hand, it seems a most strange and abrupt ending if Mark concluded the gospel with verse 8 and ended this glorious book with the words, for they were afraid. Um, recently, uh, one Bible scholar um, has argued quite forcefully um, for the fact that he believes that, um, that uh, Mark did mean to end in this abrupt, typically, as he put it, terse, abrupt manner of Mark's. It's even more remarkable because in the Greek, the last word in the sentence is for. And it seems a very strange way to end a major work like this. Now, whatever we might feel about the conclusion of Mark's gospel as to whether these verses belong to the hand of Mark or to the hand of another, there is no reason at all to doubt the genuineness of their inspiration. There is a theme which distinctly runs throughout these 20 verses, and you will not find it in the other accounts of resurrection appearances at the end of the other three Gospels. It is quite remarkable. We begin in verses 1 to 8 with the women folk going to the tomb to anoint the body of Christ and their discovery that he was alive. And we find it ends with them running away with trembling and astonishment, not daring to speak a word or divulge anything to anybody. Then in verses 9 to 11, we move to Mary Magdalene and her meeting with the risen Christ. And in verses 12 to 13, pass on to the two disciples on the Emmaus road. And in verses 14 to 18, come to the risen Christ's conclusive visitation of the eleven and his commissioning of them to his service. And end in verses 19 and 20 with his ascension and their obedience to his commission. Now, what is interesting is this we note a gradual giving away of unbelief and fear to faith. And that faith leading them to a dogmatic proclamation of the gospel with signs following. We begin in verses 1 to 8, ending, as I've said, with them running away in trembling and astonishment, afraid to say a word to anybody. No proclamation of the gospel there. Frightened to death. We go on to Mary Magdalene and her meeting with the Lord and her coming back and reporting to the, to the apostles, but it says they did not believe her. We go on to the two who went on the road to Emmaus and they came back and it says they refused used to believe them. They would not believe them either. And finally we have the, this visitation of the Lord to the eleven where he upbraids them for their unbelief and stubbornness of heart. Then at last they believe. 
and the commission is given to them. And it ends not only with the ascension of our Lord, but they're going out to proclaim the good news with signs following. Now here we come to our first lesson this evening. How interesting it is to note that the Lord could so easily have appeared to the eleven to begin with. Have you ever asked yourself that question? I mean, why didn't he appear to the leaders to begin with? Why mess around with all these sort of very simple, insignificant ladies who were all in the background in any way and may not have been able to influence things very powerfully um, as far as the leadership was concerned? Why not go to the heart of the matter and appear to the eleven and convince them by a resurrection appearance, if necessary, one, two, or three? until they finally accepted the fact that he was alive. Instead, Christ appears to the women folk and to two humble disciples and only then to the eleven. How humbling and instructive this fact is to those of us in leadership. It seems to me that the Lord is always doing this and that we leaders often do not recognize the hand and voice of God in humble believers. True servants of the Lord must always be ready to receive from God through the most humble and insignificant of his disciples. You will remember the um, account in 1 Corinthians and chapter 12 where it speaks of those, um, uh, I think it speaks of those less um, uh, honorable members uh, being actually um, more vital in many ways than, the thing, than those members which are seen. Um, and so, it's, uh, so that the whole, there's no schism in the body but the whole body is interdependent. It reminds me of a story of Watchman Nee years ago when he was um, in central China, in Hunan, and um, very much at uh, a, a very low ebb in his ministry and life and felt really that everything was at an end. But he happened to be in the country and was with uh, a company of believers of whom I think only two or three at the most could read or write. And he felt it was no point sharing with him his sort of deep experiences and sense of, of sort of being at an end because he felt they couldn't understand. But one day seeking the Lord, the Lord showed him this from 1 Corinthians 12 and the interdependence of the body. And so finally the great watchman Nee shared his inner heart with those simple, illiterate brothers and sisters. And to his amazement, what he thought could not happen, happened. They showed the deepest spiritual understanding. And in praying for him and laying hands on him, he came into a new and deeper experience which took him through the last years up to his arrest. Now, I think that is exactly an illustration of this lesson I have sought to underline here. We need to receive from the Lord 
through the most humble and insignificant of beliefs. If our Lord had wanted to, he could have met with Peter right at the start, or John, or he could have gone to the eleven. He did not. He met with these women folk, first Mary Magdalene, then the other two, then these two on their way to Emmaus. And only at the end did he come um, to the others. Now, in these verses, we have recorded some of the main events of the 40 days, beginning with Christ's resurrection and ending with his ascension. I have divided them uh, into three sections, which you can see here at the bottom. The resurrection of the servant of the Lord, verses 1 to 14. The commission of the servant of the Lord, verses 15 to 18. And the ascension of the servant of the Lord, verses 19 and 20. Now this evening we will confine ourselves to the resurrection of the servant of the Lord. These first 14 verses of this division. Now let's uh, look at um, the word, shall we, together. Um, verse 1. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. As soon as the Sabbath was over, that is, on sunset... At sunset on Saturday evening, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased the sweet-smelling aromatic spices that were used in connection with Jewish burials. Now, look at one or two of these facts here. First of all, the word spices. You will see in your authorized version that it is sweet spices. You will see in some of the other versions, um, the amplified sweet smelling uh, spices. Um, the Greek word from is the one from which we get our English word aromatic. Aromatic. And uh, it really simply is a term for any aromatic substance, whether in dried form or in oil or in ointment. Now, you will notice in Luke's account, Luke 23 and verse 56, that he says they went and bought spices and ointments. That's the first thing. The second thing about this verse, will you note the word anoint? Anoint. You will see that the living Bible says embalming spices. One or two other modern versions use the word embalming. I used it on Sunday morning. But it is not embalming after the Egyptian style. That was never observed by Jews. The Jewish custom was to first wash the body, then anoint it with ointment and oils, uh, aromatic ointments and oils, and finally wrap the body in fine, one long piece of fine linen sheet with natural aromatic spices added in all the time. The limbs were then bound with strips of cloth and the face was covered separately with a headcloth or napkin. 
In actual fact, the body was swaddled um, with these sort of like bandages uh, when it was done. But of course it wasn't like the Egyptian uh, thing, which I will not go into for fear that some of you will pass out. Um, the third point I will make about this verse um, is when the Sabbath was past, they, that is the women, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James, Salome, bought spices. There, I must say this, having studied these 16 verses, I found myself in great need of resurrection myself. There are no verses which are more difficult in some ways than these few verses of Mark's last chapter, final chapter. The reason being that somehow or other we have a lot of problems with the other Gospels. And I, as we've always done in these things, we will seek to face them. I'm very, very interested that a whole number of the commentaries, while saying that most of the discrepancies can in fact be cleared up, only deals with the ones which are very simple and can be easily cleared up. They seem to overlook the really difficult ones, and we have some. We'll try to face them. This is one of them. They could hardly have had time both to buy the spices and ointments and prepare them before the Sabbath began, as many have suggested from Luke's account in Luke 23 and verse 56. Now I'll read that, Luke 23 and verse 56. Then they returned, this, uh, we better read from verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed, saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn they went to the tomb taking the spices which they had prepared. Um... From this account, Luke's account, it has been suggested that the women folk bought the spices um, uh, after Christ's death on the cross and before the Sabbath began. I find this very, very hard to accept. Devout Jews would not have engaged in any such work as buying or selling or the preparation of such spices, even in the matter of death, w at least one hour before sunset. In other words, today it's two hours. The Talmud, of course, since then has what they, they call hedged the law and has said that two hours before sunset you should stop. Um, all these things, so that you are not in danger of breaking the Sabbath. But in those days, it was at least an hour. Now, we know from the other Gospels and um, the whole atmosphere of their accounts and Mark's account is that um, they had very little time in which to get Christ down from the cross when he died just about three o'clock that day, prepare his body decently, and uh, get him into the tomb, the tomb prepared and everything else. 
we get the distinct impression that all of them involved were seeking to keep uh, strictly both the laws concerning burial and the laws concerning the Sabbath. It seems therefore clear to me that Luke's account in these verses, Luke 23, 55 and 56, must be understood in the light of Mark's account. In other words, when the Sabbath was finished, that is, at sunset on Saturday evening, some of the women went out and bought the spices, preparing them that evening for the uh, final anointing of the Lord's body the next day. That seems to me reasonably clear. And I don't think Luke's gospel quite, uh, um, it doesn't specify when they got the um, uh, spices. It just says, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Uh, and on the first day of the week, uh, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices which they had prepared. In between this, this one sentence, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. I don't think that necessarily means that they'd prepared the spices and then rested. Anyway, um, you will have to investigate that yourselves. The fourth point I wish to make here is that John adds to our understanding of this matter by informing us in John 19, verse 39 and 40, that Nicodemus had already brought a large amount of myrrh and aloes, 100 pounds weight. That's quite some weight. Uh, when he came to join uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea in the taking down of our Lord's body. Thus, it would seem, the initial washing of our Lord's body and the initial preparation, um, uh, anointing and oiling with spices, had taken place before the Sabbath commenced, but had to be left due to the laws concerning the Sabbath. Now, if we go on in the next verse, um, verses uh, 2 and 3, we read this. It was early, I shall put it in my own words, it was early in the morning, just after sunrise, that these faithful women were making their way to the tomb. For them, there could have been no more sad occasion, nor mournful duty to fulfill. Their whole life had fallen down, their whole world had fallen down, and their lives seemed finished and empty. Um, numbed with uh, shock and grief, they found relief, as so many do, in fulfilling the many tasks and chores connected with a funeral it seems that it had never occurred to them that they might have difficulty in getting into the sepulchre until they were nearly at the tomb itself. It's quite a remarkable thing. It's a very interesting little sideline upon the way they were numbed with grief and shock. Let's have a look again at these verses. First of all, um, verse 2, When the sun had risen, 
the Revised Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible is much better than the authorized version at the rising of the sun. It is literally the sun having risen. Matthew says, as it began to dawn, well, the dawn comes a little earlier before the sun actually rises. Um, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the, at the grave. Matthew 28, verse 1. Um, Luke says, at early dawn, they came to the grave. Um, it would seem that although Mark mentions only three women in verse 1, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome. There were others also involved. Now Mary, the mother of James, as she is put. If you look at um, uh, the uh, verse 47 of the previous chapter, 15, you will see she's there called Mary the mother of Joseph. And if you look earlier on to verse 40 of that uh, uh, chapter, you will see that she is there called Mary, the mother of James the Less, or the Little, and Joseph. It seems also from John 19.25, if we compare these, Matthew 27.56, we compare, we find that there was Mary, the mother of our Lord at the cross, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and Salome. John says this very interesting thing. There was Mary... Mary's sister, wife of Clopas, um, Mary Magdalene, and Salome. Now we come to some rather interesting thing. Very ancient tradition tells us that Clopas was the brother of Joseph, the earthly father of our Lord Jesus, husband of Mary. Therefore, it would seem that this Mary, mother of James and Joseph, was the aunt of the Lord Jesus. I hope that's clear to everyone. Um, Clopas, by the way, as in the revised version and uh, modern versions, is the correct um, uh, rendering, not Cleopas. He is not to be mixed up with the Cleopas of the Emmaus Road experience. Now, I do hope you've got that clear. Then Salome, we learn also that Salome was the mother, the mother of Zebedee's sons. In other words, the Apostle John and the Apostle James, their mother was Salome. She was the lady who um, uh, uh, was behind their asking, you remember, if they, the boys could have um, seats in the coming kingdom on either side of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Salome. Um, well, thank you very much. If you don't mind, Lorna, thank you. If you don't mind, uh, yes, Lorna, if you don't mind not interrupting, thank you. It's all being recorded and we can't, uh, if it's, thing, it's making a mess. Um, so we have um, three or four folks here. First, we have Mary Magdalene. She is Mary of Migdal. If we were put it in the Hebrew form, it's Miriam of Migdal. We have Miriam, the mother of Jacob and Joseph, that is, of James and Joseph. 
and we have Salome or Shulamit. Um, there we have the three women mentioned here. Luke mentions that Joanna and other women were also with them. Luke 24 and verse 10. Matthew only mentions Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. It would seem that in fact Mary Magdalene was not with them. John tells us that she had already been there when Mary, the mother of James, and Salome arrived just after the sun had risen. He says quite explicitly that, she, that Mary Magdalene arrived while it was yet dark. John 20 and verse 1. If that is so, it would seem that she must have come there at least one hour before the other two. At least one hour before the other two. Arriving whilst it was still dark, she had found the tomb opened, jumped to the conclusion that Christ's body must have been stolen, and rushed away to inform Peter and John. You'll see that in John 20, the first three verses. Bringing together the evidence, it seems that Mary Magdalene had gone well ahead of the others. Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and some other women, starting out, started out whilst it was still twilight, but arrived after the sun had arisen. Then will you notice, fourthly, verse 3, they were saying to, them, to one another, who will roll away the stone? Now, nowhere does it actually say um, in our versions that the stone was a circular stone, but we know that it was because of this verb used again and again, to roll away, to roll back. If it had been in the Hebrew, we would have known that it was a circular stone because it was the golel, from which we get the word galil, or Galilee. Uh, a circle. Um, but we know that it was rolled away or rolled back. Therefore, of course, it wasn't the square stone door that you sometimes found in tombs. Comparing this question they asked themselves, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone? And the next phase of verse 4 and looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It seems that the problem only occurred to them when they were nearly at the tomb. In other words, it is quite remarkable to me that these dear ladies started out, where, having seen the tomb uh, uh, at the, uh, just before the Sabbath began, they knew very well it was an enormous stone. They actually watched it rolled into place. But they were so numbed with grief so shocked with all the events that had taken place. And so, going on as we often do when we've, we, we've lost a loved one, we go on with the tasks and chores connected with the burial almost automatically, in almost as it were to keep ourselves going. They finally came to that, and only as they were more or less right on it did they say, who's going to roll away the stone? And then looking up, they saw that it had been rolled back. Well, now then, let's go on to the next verses, verses 
4 to 7. Then looking up, the women saw that the huge circular millstone had been rolled back from the entrance of the sepulchre. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right-hand side, dressed in white. The sight of him made them very frightened. But before um, they could run away, he said to them, Don't be frightened. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Look, here is the place where they laid him. But now go and tell his disciples and Peter that he will be in Galilee before you. You will see him there just as he told you. Now will you notice one or two things here? First of all, in verse 4, it was very large. The revised version puts it exceeding great, for it was exceeding great. It was very large, as the Revised Standard Version, and the New American Standard Bible says it was extremely large, which I think is probably the best of all. Most of these millstone doors to tombs, of which there are still quite a number extant in, in and around Jerusalem, were large. It would appear that this was a particularly large one. Um, it would certainly have been too heavy for the women to move in their normal state of health, let alone when weakened by much grief and shock. Secondly, you see the stone was rolled back, verse 4. It was rolled back, will you please all get this point? It was rolled, it was not, let me put it this way, it was not, rolled back to let Christ out. That is the common fallacy, that it was rolled back to let Christ out. It was not rolled back to let Christ out. He had already risen, and closed doors, whether of wood or stone, presented no difficulty whatsoever to our Lord. In John Chapter 20 and verse 19 says, they had closed the doors for fear of the Jews and suddenly he stood in the midst of them. There it was no problem to our Lord. It was rolled back to let the disciples in. That's really what it was all about. It was rolled back to let the disciples in so that they could see two things, an empty tomb and undisturbed grave clothes. Two tremendously significant things. Furthermore, it was not Christ himself who rolled back the stone. Matthew informs us that it was an angel of the Lord who rolled back the stone and sat on it. I always think that's one of the unconscious points of humor in the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe it's conscious humor, I don't know, but I think it's a very funny thing to, to think of the angel heaving the stone back and then climbing up on this great thing and sitting on it. What a picture it must have been. This stone rolled back, this extremely large millstone rolled back is a wonderful picture. That 
large stone is a picture of all that keeps fallen man in a living tomb that makes this world a living death. Now Christ has risen and overcome the power of death and the one who wields that power. He has brought him to naught and led captivity captive. The stone and all that it represents of bondage and impossibility has been rolled back. Christ is not only able to save, but to lead us out into the sunshine of God's purpose and glory. With this resurrection, a new and eternal day has dawned for the redeemed of God the extremely large stones that imprison man have been rolled back. Thirdly, will you note, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, appear to have had very different temperaments to Mary Magdalene. I find this a very interesting point. Dear Mary Magdalene, we can't help loving her. When she got to the tomb, she took, she took one look at it and jumped to a conclusion and rushed as fast as her legs could carry her to tell Peter and John that they had stolen the body of our Lord. And even later when she's back there with them and she sees the Lord. By the way, she saw the two angels who she evidently thought were a couple of lads um, and didn't take in too much of what they said. Turning around, she saw this man and in her grief she thought it was the gardener and said, where have you taken the body? Do you know where the body is? But these other two, Mary the mother of James and Salome of a very different metal. They had just been saying to each other, who's going to roll back the stone? And when they got there and saw that the stone was rolled back, looking up, they saw it. They didn't have a question. They must have just praised the Lord, let out a hallelujah, and went straight into the tomb. Quite different. I find that a very, very interesting point. They asked no questions, but entered the tomb to anoint the dead body of Christ. Fourthly, Mark does not mention the soldiers who'd been on duty guarding the tomb. Neither do John or Luke. It is only Matthew who furnishes us with the details. And you can find them in Matthew 27, 62 to 66, when the Sanhedrin asked especially for a guard to be put on. And, of course, in Matthew 28 from verse 2 to 4. What is interesting is that the, um, the, the governor, uh, Pontius Pilate, um, uh, put on a whole cohort of soldiers. That's about 50 men. Of course, they wouldn't have all guarded it at the same time. But they must have taken it in shifts watches to guard the tomb. It was not only sealed, but it was guarded. Now, Matthew tells us that the appearance of the angel of the Lord caused the whole guard to tremble, <laughs> I bet it did, and become as dead men. Now, that's the way the Bible puts it, you know, and, and it's the way it's put in Old English. But what it, does it mean, made them tremble, to tremble and become as dead men? It, mean, it means knock them out. It knocked the whole unconscious. Now what I find very interesting is that our Mary and Salome and the earlier Mary Magdalene never noticed these soldiers knocked out all over the place. 
There's not a mention of them. And one can only again surmise, of course there would have only been two or three or four, I suppose, or however many actually on the door of the tomb. Others may have been uh, farther out around the garden. Um, all we can surmise is this, that when they looked up and saw the stone rolled back, they immediately went into the tomb. They didn't look around, they didn't think, they just, they were, they had been so downcast. You see, it's interesting, really, they looked up. Now, the tomb wouldn't have been high up. It would have probably been on a level. But it's interesting that they were so downcast that their heads were down as they went. Just un an unconscious evidence of their the condition of their spirits and souls. And they looked up and saw. And only then, when they saw, they went straight in. So I take it that they did not see the, uh, the guards. Then again, another very interesting thing, that another point I'd like to make is verse 5. A young man, a young man, um, and entering in, it says, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe. The Greek is a youth, and it's a diminutive form of the word used for young man. And it is the same word used of the lad who followed the Lord Jesus so far, you remember, from the Garden of Gethsemane until suddenly someone grabbed him and he left his, the linen cloth that was cast around him in their hand and fled naked into the night. I find it very, very interesting. Because angels seem to differ. You see, you get some angels that seem to be old gentlemen. You get some angels that we're told of were exceedingly strong. And here we have an angel who is just like a lad. Mark does not actually refer to him as an angel, although it is implied. Matthew calls him an angel of the Lord, Matthew 28, verse 2. Luke informs us that there were two of them, and he refers to them as men. He says there were two men um, there. John refers to them as two angels in white. That's John 20, verse 12. It is very interesting how so often in the Bible angels are mistaken initially for men. Their true identity only becoming apparent as the meeting with them progressed. That's why we had that wonderful word about exercising hospitality, for in the doing of it, some have entertained angels unawares. You see, this idea that all angels have enormous wings and a, and a glittering halo and is rubbish. Nearly every angel you find, right the way from Genesis, right the way through to the end of the Bible, nearly all of them appear to be quite human in, in form and initially are taken as human beings. Only later, uh, as the meeting with them progresses, uh, it's discovered that they are messengers from God. Another point 
um, in verse 5, it says they were amazed. Now, um, here we have a little problem actually with the word. Astonished is the way J.B. Phillips puts it. They were astonished. Startled is the way the Living Bible puts it. Dumbfounded is the way the New English Bible puts it. The old authorised version may actually be better here. Affrighted. It says they were affrighted. It's a little more than amazed. It is probably best rendered were very frightened. Something about those two, about the young uh, man, uh, produced in them a real fear. Now, in the East, even a boy has authority over uh, womenfolk in the family. His word is law, generally speaking. Um, and uh, these ladies shouldn't have been too afraid um, about a young man. They would have been used to it. He would have had authority. What was it that made them, uh, that astonished them, so that startled them, that unnerved them? That's the best way. They were unnerved. There must have been something about this youth that wasn't normal, that somehow just unnerved nerved them. The fact that John and Luke both say there were two is no contradiction to Mark's account. Uh, Mark just tells us of the one who was inside who spoke. And angels have a habit of appearing and disappearing at will. Um, seventhly, why were the angels there? Now, I would like to know, I wonder, I wonder just how many have asked these questions. I d you'll never, as I've said again and again about these studies, you'll never get anything out of these studies if you just come along and sit there like a cod. Uh, unless you read the chapter and read it in the different versions and read the alternative versions, some of what I'm saying tonight will not mean a lot to you. But if you've done your homework, then what I'm saying to you tonight could mean quite a lot. Now, I wonder whether you've asked yourself, why were there angels there at all? Could not Christ, by his very appearances, have convinced the disciples of the truth of his resurrection without any angelic help whatsoever? Of course. The angels were there, in fact, to see, now listen, that none of the soldiers, the Sanhedrin, or anyone else interfered with the tomb or the grave clothes until some of the disciples had witnessed for themselves what had happened and the rest of the disciples had been informed. It is a most interesting fact that you do not find the angels anywhere but in connection with the tomb. They do not appear in the meeting place of the disciples. They do not uh, suddenly meet them elsewhere. It is only in connection with the tomb that you find the ministry of the angels. They were there to see that no one came into that place and interfered with the tomb or with the grave clothes. I think that's a very interesting uh, uh, point. Eighthly, um, the word in verse 6, do not be amazed, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who's been crucified, he has risen, he is not here. What a universe of glory in such simple human words. 
You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. They had come to anoint a dead body and discovered a risen Christ. Dear, faithful, loving souls, the church of God has been, its very heart is made up of such women as these women. It is no wonder to me that the Lord went to them first. They are not the silly, empty-headed, gullible women that we do find in uh, church circles. But here are women who are faithful, loyal, dependable, conscientious, rugged almost, in their grit. With Mary Magdalene, they had been the last to leave the cross, the last to leave the sealed tomb. It had seemed as if all their hopes and aspirations had died with Christ and were buried in that tomb. Now, they were the first to discover an empty tomb and a risen Christ. How tenderly the angel speaks to them, don't be frightened. You are looking, you are seeking Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus of Nazareth is right, but Jesus the Nazarene is literally correct. You are seeking Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. And then will you notice the next phrase, um, see where the place where they laid him. Verse 6, see the place where they laid him. Revised Standard Version. Mark does not actually mention the grave clothes, only the fact that the angel draws their attention to the place where the body had lain. Now this is very, very important. In all the versions of this, uh, of this event, it says that the angel drew their attention to where the body had lain. Now why? Do you think that proves anything? I mean, think! What does it prove? The body could have been stolen. So you say they were there, that's where he was. But then what does that mean? No, it's John who furnishes us with the details of this matter. When they said, see the place where he lay, they were pointing to the grave clothes. Because where he lay, <laughs> as they looked, they saw the grave clothes exactly as they had been wrapped around the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here is the miracle. I wonder how many have seen this. The grave clothes to which the angel drew their attention were lying in exactly the same folds that they had been in when wrapped around the body of Christ. Only the body was missing. The head cloth was the only piece rolled up neatly and placed separately. Now John makes a lot of this. He said he saw and believed. That was John the Apostle. Why did he believe? What is this so much about grave clothes? If someone had stolen the body, they could have torn the body up. Exactly. The grave clothes were not neatly folded up, having the body having been unraveled. Nor were the grave clothes not there taken with the body, nor were the grave clothes disturbed as if the body had been taken out of them, roughly, 
and quickly. The grave clothes were there exactly as they had been around. And those two women had seen Jesus as he laid. It says expressly that they saw how the body lay. That, dear, dear children of God, is the greatest single piece of evidence, apart from meeting the risen Christ, we have for the resurrection. And it was that that made the Apostle John begin to believe, although with doubts. And it was that that started the Apostle Peter wondering. And it was that that must have had the deepest effect upon these women. Tenthly, will you notice verse 7, those wonderful little words, go and tell um, his disciples and Peter? What matchless words of love and grace. Only Mark records these additional words, and Peter. The angel must have been expressly commanded to mention Peter's name. Isn't that lovely? The Lord must have said to the angel, now you just say, and Peter. It was, of course, the risen servant of the Lord with his heart of compassion and sensitive tenderness. Peter was certainly not the last at the cross, nor the last at the tomb. As far as we know, Peter was never at any point at the cross or at the tomb before the resurrection of Christ. The whole framework of his so-called spiritual life had been devastated. His superficial faith had been destroyed. His forceful and rugged self-confidence, uh, the strength of his natural life, had received its death blow in these last days. It was his denial of the Lord and that look which Christ gave him which had broken him. And at that time, Peter was a deeply vulnerable man. Now, the risen Christ sends a message to them all, and to Peter in particular. The servant of the Lord had prayed for Peter that his faith should not fail, and that true faith, which is the gift of God, had not failed. He was not only to meet the risen Christ personally, and no doubt we, have, we actually do not know what our Lord said to Peter. We only know twice it is mentioned that he met Peter alone. Um, no doubt Peter heard those healing words of forgiveness from the lips of the risen Christ. He was not only to meet the risen Christ personally, he was to become the first amongst God's servants, the first to preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the first to open the door of salvation to the Gentiles. Verse 8. They went out of the tomb and ran away from it as fast as possible, seized by trembling and astonishment. They did not dare to speak to anyone. Now, here we have one of our greatest problems. Matthew tells us 
that as they ran to tell his disciples, the risen Christ met them. Let's see Matthew 28, verses 8 to 11. Luke also tells us that they went and informed the apostles, but were not believed. See Luke 24, 8 to 11. It would seem, therefore, that Mark's account must mean that they were too astonished, too full, and taken back to speak with anyone but the eleven. It must have just been that it meant they just couldn't stop anyone who met them or saw them. They were too full, they just couldn't. We need also to recognize that Mark is emphasizing how very difficult it was for the disciples to believe. That's what is so wonderful about Mark's conclusion, that he um, uh, um, uh, emphasizes the fact that these disciples found it very, very hard to believe indeed. It wasn't an easy thing. Mark then goes on to enumerate a number of the notable resurrection appearances of Christ. Firstly, he appeared to Mary Magdalene whom he had delivered from seven demons. But when she recounted her experience uh, to the morning grief-struck disciples, they refused to believe it. Now, there are one or two things here to look at. Mary Magdalene was the first disciple to meet with the risen Christ. We have the full account of this in John 20 and the first 18 verses. This was Mary of Magdala in Galilee, now called Migdal. Some have identified her with the woman in Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. That is the, the prostitute, the woman of the streets, who wiped the Lord's uh, feet with her, her hair and anointed him. We cannot, ha however, be sure about this. Certainly, she had, a, she had experienced a glorious deliverance, whatever is meant by seven demons being cast out of her. She was an outstanding disciple. I always feel sorry for other folks when they're referred to as the other. Don't you think it's rather sad for poor old Mary, uh, wife of Clopas, mother of James uh, and Joseph, to be referred to by Matthew as the other Mary? I bet she had that out with him. <laughs> now, if not then. The other Mary. It always reminds me of people being introduced as the son of so-and-so. This is so-and-so's son. You know, this is so-and-so's uh, uh, wife. You sometimes must feel that you're not a person in your own right. The other Mary. But it does show that Mary Magdalene was an outstanding uh, uh, character and personality, an outstanding disciple. Secondly, from whom he had cast out seven demons. This is not fanciful or exaggerated. There are such beings as demons. Furthermore, it is possible for a human being to be possessed by a number of them. You will remember the story of the uh, Gadarene swine. Remember the man who came out of the tomb with an unclean spirit and when the Lord told it to go, he said, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then he caused the unclean spirits to go out. Now, Legion, of course, is thousands and thousands. Let those that gloss over these matters as if the 20th century has banished demons along with other fairy tales take note of the word of God. 
God. Jesus says, These signs shall follow those that believe in my name. They shall cast out demons. On the other hand, let us beware of becoming so demon conscious that we attribute to demons what does not belong to them. I found people who've got the demon of this and the demon of that and the demon of the other and all they need is a good kick in the pants. <laughs> Sometimes it's an excuse for not, uh, for, for not knowing the discipline of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's, the, it, it's because we don't want to know the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. Sometimes it's because we don't want to know the way of the cross. We have to be careful when we attribute to demons so much that it means that we are able to do anything we want to trot along for some kind of deliverance ministry to free us and act as a sop to our conscience. That is not what we mean. But on the other hand, never underestimate the power and influence of demons. They are only spirits, fallen spirits, that inhabit uh, this universe. Thirdly, note, as they mourned and wept, verse 10, whilst they were mourning and weeping, is the New American Standard Bible's rendering. What a picture is here presented of those sad, disheartened, and grief-struck disciples. Mary Magdalene goes back to them whilst they were mourning and weeping. And fourthly, they would not believe it. That's the Revised Standard Version. Again, the New American Standard Bible puts it like this. They refuse to believe it. Hmm. The atmosphere is one of stubborn incredulity. It is amazing how you find this amongst the Lord's people, isn't it? Someone can have had an amazing deliverance, but some will just not believe it. Oh, wait. You know, stubborn incredulity. It's just there. Thing. After this, the risen Christ had appeared to two of the disciples, and with this we shall finish, as they had walked to Emmaus. Yet when these two returned to Jerusalem straight away and recounted their experience uh, to the um, apostles and the rest, none of them would believe them. We have the full account of the appearance of the risen Christ to these two on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, from verse 13 to 35. There we are told that they were on their way to Emmaus. Here it is simply stated, as they were walking into the country, rather sweetly and simply put. There are four sites near Jerusalem, all of which are pointed out by various guides as the Emmaus of the New Testament. Secondly, note in another form. I think that's a very interesting word. Verse 12, revised version, revised standard, in a different form, New American Standard Bible. He appeared to them in a different form. Luke tells us that their eyes were prevented from uh, recognizing him until he broke bread with them. But it is interesting means that there were times when our Lord deliberately, rather like these angels, sort of um, changed himself or changed his form in some way. I don't know, I, I don't understand it myself, but I make the point of underlining it. Thirdly, they did not believe them either. That's the New American Standard Bible, and very well put. 
Luke tells us that in fact when the two had returned, before they could say anything in detail, the disciples, please listen to this because it just doesn't seem at first sight to tie in. He says that when they returned, the two from Emmaus, before they could say anything in detail, the disciples had said to them, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to, um, to Simon. But then goes on to recount that when he stood among them, they were very afraid, thinking that they were being haunted and were full of questionings. Now, you may think I'm a bit fanciful saying haunted. Not at all. If you read the Luke account, it says they thought they were affrighted because they thought they were seeing a spirit. In other words, they either thought that it was the ghost of Jesus haunting them, or they thought that it was a spirit impersonating Jesus or just troubling them. And it says they were full of questionings. Um, note also the next incident in, in verse 14 of Mark 16 where the Lord upbraids them for their unbelief and stubbornness of heart. Now, I think we must bring our study this evening to a close. Taking all the various accounts and different incidents together, it seems that the eleven and the disciples vacillated between belief and doubt. We who have known anything of miracles in our experience know full well this strange vacillation between faith and unbelief. I've known it myself. When God has worked in the most remarkable way, you can't believe it. And you begin to try and find some natural explanation for it, until in the end you become quite convinced that it really is the Lord. I believe this is what happened with the disciples. You find, first of all, it says John believed. The next moment we're told that none of them believed them. And John must have been there. We're told that Peter began to wonder, and yet somehow or other doesn't seem to believe. Uh, it's uh, interesting, this kind of vacillation. And it is very interesting that Matthew 28, and almost the last verses says, that when the Lord Jesus appeared to them in Galilee, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Isn't it amazing, this mixture of faith and unbelief? This evil heart of unbelief lurks in us all, and it is my experience that true believers do not believe easily. They are not the superstitious, credulous, and gullible people that this world thinks they are. True faith is the gift of God. The idea that if you are by nature superstitious, credulous, and simple-minded, that is empty-headed, faith will come to you easily is nonsense. But you hear it again and again. You hear people saying, I do wish I was like so-and-so. So simple. What they mean is, of course, stupid. <laughs> well, that's what they really mean. They mean so-and-so is unacademic, unintelligent, and rather dim. But you know it's lovely to be like that, because when you're like that, you believe God. I've not found the dim to believe God so easily. There is nothing like the obstinacy of stupidity. Nothing. 
People who are dim-witted are sometimes the most stubborn and obstinate people in the world. Such a mentality can be a real hindrance to true and living faith. If you're superstitious by nature, God deliver you from it. If you're the kind of person who can't set, seal or set sail on Friday the 13th or wear green on any Friday uh, in the month or can't walk under a ladder, and there are plenty of them, May the Lord deliver you from it, because faith will not come to you easily. If you think it's easy to believe in God, it's superstition, not faith. True faith has never been naive gullibility. It is, that is certainly not God's gift. It is interesting, therefore, to note how hardly the disciples believed that Christ was raised from the dead. And even when they began to believe, they wondered whether it was not his ghost or a spirit that was visiting them. The idea that they were a crowd of enthusiasts, by their very fervor, becoming the subject of hallucination, is not borne out by the evidence in these records. Even the records themselves have not been tampered with to make them fit each other perfectly. Have you noticed that? I think it's one of the remarkable evidences of the authenticity of the resurrection that we have these records exactly as they were written. Some dishonest Christians would have got to work on these records long ago if they could and married them together so that there wouldn't have been a single uh, discrepancy or difference. <clears throat> the fact that we have them untampered, just as they were written, is valuable eyewitness evidence. The very fact of a living, dynamic church in existence after the death of Christ can only be adequately explained by the resurrection. Well now, the Lord willing, next week we will look at uh, ver from verse 14 and then we'll go on and see if we can finish the verses. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we've looked at this wonderful account of thy resurrection and those appearances to various ones of thy children. Oh, Father, how we thank thee that we too have met with the risen Christ. We thank thee for that day, Lord, when unbelief gave way to faith. And when, dear Lord, by thy grace, thou didst lead us for the first time to open our mouths and to witness to others. O oh Lord, we want to thank thee that we can find our own experience, however dimly, within the verses of this chapter. Use it, Lord, we pray, and all the amount of material that has been given tonight 
to instruct us more deeply and establish us more firmly in this faith which has been once and for all delivered to us. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.